Hello, and thank you for tuning in to Answers from the Lab, where we share Mayo Clinic knowledge and advancements on the state of testing and science from laboratory leaders and the people who are making it happen behind the scenes. I'm Dr. Bobby Pritt, Interim Chair of the Department of Laboratory Medicine and Pathology at Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. With me today is Dr. Bill Maurice, the President and CEO of Mayo Clinic Laboratories. This is our weekly discussion with Dr. Maurice, in which we learn about updates in the field of laboratory medicine and pathology. Hi, Bill. How are you this week? I'm doing great. How are you? Good. Yeah, just came back from Austin, Texas, so it's a nice time to be in the upper Midwest this time of year. Yeah, it's beautiful. It's beautiful here mm -hmm. over the weekend, and I'm a little tired. I'm training for Grandma's Marathon. Getting some, some, which is June 17th in Duluth and getting some free coaching from your administrative partner, George Von Borman, who's a very accomplished yes. distance runner. So yeah, I did a long run this weekend. I might not have my usual vim <laughs> and vigor here on, on the, for our podcast. I'll do my best. I have no concerns at all. And uh, we have an exciting topic today, artificial intelligence, really definitely a hot topic and how it impacts all of us in the laboratory. Yeah, and how it will impact us and, and mm -hmm. what, what kind of difference will it make? Yeah, it's very timely. So I figured we could start with some definitions because we have the term artificial intelligence and then there's expert systems, machine learning, augmented intelligence, and they're all related but separate concepts. And so I'm thinking for the purpose of this podcast, because this is how it is generally defined in the field, artificial intelligence is sort of the overall umbrella. It refers to automated simulation of human judgment. And so that in could include systems that work autonomously or in conjunction with human judgment. Yeah, it can be confusing right? because the terms, they're not exactly the same, just like, and it's one of those things when I read about it, I can remember what's the difference between machine learning and augmented intelligence and a neural mm -hmm. network and all that kind of stuff. But I think for most of us, just to think about artificial intelligence as sort of an overarching area of really of evolving medicine that we're right. going to be dealing with over the next several decades and have a huge impact. I know with your passion for education, mm -hmm. mine as well. I mean, I think about even it will impact medical training because the kind of tools that our pathologists and laboratories and, and, and medical practitioners in general have are going to change a lot. So yes. One thing that's interesting, and I'll just start here, is that from my perspective, is that actually this is really new for us in healthcare, but a lot of the concepts that we're now really talking about have been in practice in other areas and in other industries for some time. So one that we people are hearing about now are digital twin, where you can create a basically digital individual that, that mirrors, and then you can look at how interventions will work. I know it's something Dr. Vijay Shah is working on here at mm -hmm. Mayo. That actually came out of GE where they created digital twins for their jet engines. Huh. I think for some of the locomotive engines to try and predict when they were going to have service failures. The tools are out there. It's just how do we safely apply them to medicine becomes important. But I think the time is right and it's really needed in lab medicine. And I think there's a lot of good examples. I know you have some where they're actually really helping us get our work done at a time when our staff is really stressed. Well, absolutely. We have national work shortages, workforce shortages. So we have shortages in technologists, histotechnologists, cytotechnologists. And so anything that makes our job a little easier, that our staff can actually focus on things that are interesting to them, avoid ergonomic injuries, make them more efficient is just really desirable at this time. And for me in the parasitology lab, we just implemented a system about two weeks ago that uses 
deep learning. So it's a, a form of machine learning to identify parasites in trichrome stained stool specimens. So it's similar to anatomic pathology where you have a slide, it's been stained, it gets scanned in. So you have a digitized slide. And then this algorithm looks for parasites on the slide. This is really good for our lab because we don't see a lot of parasites, even though we probably see more than many places in the US, still about 5% of our specimens are positive, the other 95% are negative. So this is really in the area of rare event detection. How can we help our staff find those rare events so they don't have to screen through hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of negative slides and then allow them to really focus on the interesting things, which are the positives. Our yeah. staff have been very positive about it. Yeah, that's, uh, that's number one, that's really cool. And it's great that the staff are receptive to it. I do think that, you know, the workforce shortages in healthcare and in lab medicine are not just even national. I mean, they're global, right? And yeah. so, and the other thing, it's really good for our patients because the reality is that if you have an individual that's screening and most of the things they're looking at are negative and taking a lot of work, it actually makes it more difficult for them to see a positive just, that's mm -hmm. just because the human mind works. So, right. So yeah, I mean, it's really good. As you were talking, another example, thinking about why we need it now. So I'll focus on a technology that's near and dear to me, and that's flow cytometry. Because that was my first administrative job at Mayo in DLMP was actually being the director of our flow cytometry lab, the cell kinetics lab in, in HEMPATH. We had, at that time, we just moved into four colors, and we had, I think, two or three tests that we would perform, you know, to look at B cells and, and T cells and, and acute leukemias. Now, even in my time, the instrumentation evolved to where you could do up to 10 antibodies in a single specimen, 10 or 10, 12 color, not just four, and where we have a whole myriad of tests, some of them around rare event detection, some around really phenotyping subsets of disease, et cetera. That happened in like a 15-year period. It's more information than we can actually consume and to make mm. sense out of. You know, our ability to generate information has has really rapidly grown much more so than our ability to comprehend it. So these tools are great because now that's what they're doing. And so in the flow lab, all of a sudden we had our text gating. It took up to two hours of technologist wow. time to gate one of these where uh, Dr. Seaholt in the HEMPAT division. Now, luckily people a lot smarter than me in there when I was yeah. back there, but they've, he's come up with an algorithm that can actually do, automate the gating and then a two hour process down to 30 seconds. And again, yeah. drive out a lot of that variability that you see you have to have the right tech and the right consultant looking at the case mm -hmm. to where we have a, best, a much better quality standard baseline. So these things are, are great. And there's a lot of examples across the LMP. Yeah, there really is. And it's fantastic technology when used correctly. And as you said, it could help decrease error, increase efficiency, decrease turnaround time, decrease ergonomic issues for my staff sitting at a yeah. microscope all day long, looking at hundreds of slides. It just, it, allows them to focus on the smaller number of the positive slides that really needs their high level of expertise and takes away just some of the inefficient and less satisfying work, honestly. So it also increases staff satisfaction. Yeah, exactly. And that's, I think, going to be the big driver as someone's been interested in digital pathology for a long time. Of course, Mayo under Dr. Fruge's leadership and what mm -hmm. has really made a big investment in digital pathology. But that will be the driver there, too. I know it's tough for pathologists to get through it. It's really expensive. It's a different workflow. It's looking at a screen, not in a microscope. But the reality is you can do the work much more efficiently. And if you're talking to people like in Europe where they practice digital pathology for a while, all the things that you talk about are possible mm -hmm. there too. And that's why it's really increased adoption. 
it sounds great and there's a yes. lot of promise, but there are still a lot of barriers as well. I'll start with one going back to digital pathology. It's a still a major investment, a huge investment in terms of the, the scanning, the storage, the IT, all that. Yeah. I think now there's now CPT codes for digital pathology, but I think reimbursement yes. and your regulatory, how are these things going to be regulated as well? Of course, that's a big reason why digital pathology was slower in the U.S. is that the FDA decided it was going to be, you know, a class two device, I think it was. But it had, it basically, I had to be FDA cleared. So I don't know. What are your thoughts there? I mean, are you seeing the yeah, same thing? Absolutely. So there are those new CPT codes and definitely people should be using them right now. They're for pathologists sign out and there's no reimbursement associated with them. But if we use them, then that allows the system to gather data on how often people are using digital pathology. So definitely people should be using these new codes and there's more to come. But reimbursement still does remain a big question. And will professional reimbursement decrease? Will it come out of the technical component instead of a professional component? Those are all things that are remain to be seen. And then regulation. What is the regulatory landscape? So the test that we've implemented in the clinical parasitology laboratory is commercially available, but not FDA approved. So we performed a very extensive validation, one of the largest I've done to date, which is pretty significant, so that we could implement it as a laboratory developed test and really feel comfortable with its performance characteristics. And I should note that as the pathologist and laboratory director overseeing it, it really is my responsibility to ensure that the test is reliable for clinical care. And the algorithm has been locked down, which is important. It's not continuing to learn. And that's something that I think all of us as laboratory leaders need to really understand. If we bring in a system, is it going to continue to learn and change? and potentially have a negative impact on performance characteristics over time because systems can actually become worse over time if they're allowed to continue to change. So there's a lot of things we need to know about as laboratory leaders. We really need to be involved in the development, implementation, and maintenance of these systems if we're going to be bringing them into our laboratories. Yeah, absolutely right. You have to get engaged, you have to understand, and you have to make sure you have access to the right level of expertise. I know mm -hmm. one of the concerns in digital pathology, for instance, is that algorithms perform differently on different ethnic groups, which you wouldn't mm -hmm. think about off of a slide. I think prostate cancer is one for sure that I've heard. Some of the algorithms that have been developed for Caucasian populations don't work in others, like African-Americans nearly as well, need to continue to be engaged and to understand. And I think you're right. It's still difficult to get a read exactly where FDA is going to go with this, too. They've kind of gone back and forth to say, we're not going to regulate it, to we're going to regulate it as software as a medical device, meaning you're going to have to have version control and everything else. There's a lot of uncertainty out there. It's important for us to get engaged in. And I think there's a lot of groups now that you can go to and get information. You mentioned CAP, just put a mm -hmm. white paper out there. There's digital, the digital Pathology Association. There's others, places to go and learn, I think, which is probably the most important thing for all of us. Yeah, the College of American Pathologists, CAP, just put out a white paper from the Artificial Intelligence Committee on the role of pathologists and, and this applies to all laboratory leaders that are laboratory directors on using, implementing, and overseeing artificial intelligence. So that's a good read. It's just a two-page document. It has a lot of good information. There's others out there as well. So at this point, anyone who's listening, who's considering implementing artificial intelligence should really go out and start educating themselves on the topic. They don't have to be informaticians. They don't have to be IT experts, but they need to understand some basic principles and really putting patient safety at the forefront 
Because as you said, if you have an algorithm that is trained on one subset of a population, it may not be applicable to others. And you could have biases introduced that could be detrimental. Yeah, it'll be interesting to see again mm -hmm. if this is going to become to be on CAP checklists as these things really come into practice. And I, I do think mm -hmm. we're going to see this for the, all the things that you talked about, the workforce and everything else and the quality. There are going to be a lot of tailwinds to get these introduced into the clinical environment, but we have to think about all the stuff. And mm -hmm. of course, we haven't even talked about the one thing which is really on a lot of people's minds. And I think I mentioned this in a, a previous podcast when I was at the Becker's Healthcare Conference here a uh, hospital conference i guess about six weeks ago a month ago something like that then they had the hospital leadership the cios up in front of that group they saw chat gpt version 4 was the most <laughs> significant advance in computing in the last 50 years and that's yeah. a, it's another term that people may or may not have heard about but have been hearing about for a while that's nlp or natural language processing mm -hmm. which is basically a ability of a computer to read right? Read human language. The advancements in that really over the last few years have come to the point where the program can actually read and go out and, and find pieces of data and then put a rendering back to us in our own native language, which is pretty remarkable. On the one hand, it has all sorts of potential. It'll raise a whole nother set of issues, I think. It really does. Something for us to keep an eye on because it's so powerful. And ChatGPT is just one of these models. Uh, they're also sometimes called large language models yeah, or, or right. generative yep. generative AI. I'm actually going to be leading a work group on generative AI and how it can help pathologists through the College of American Pathologists. We have to keep in mind that right now, if you're using one of these publicly available systems like ChatGPT, anything that you input into it becomes publicly available. So you definitely don't want to put any patient information. It would be a huge protected health information violation because if you put, say you upload a medical record and say, summarize the main points of this patient's presentation for me, well, it would probably do a great job, but also all that information is now out and publicly available. Yeah, <laughs> excellent point. Because that is the one publication that got a lot of attention. I think there was a reporter or someone that had a dog that was sick that no one could tell what was wrong with it. And, mm -hmm. and so he just put all the information to one of these publicly available large language models. And it came back with the whole episode and, and a correct diagnosis. I think mm -hmm. it was actually a parasitic infection. I saw so, that as well. I think it was Giardia, right? I can't yeah, remember. Yeah, I think that's but... right. Yeah. So, so, I mean, these things are coming. I mean, they're kind of, they're coming. It's, and it's as a patient, you could consider doing this for yourself. Again, you have to realize then that all of your public information of whatever symptoms you've been experiencing will now be out there in the public available. But for uh, those of us that are patient facing, we're probably going to see more patients coming to us with their chat GPT or their AI generated result of what they think they have. Yeah. Wow. Whole new world. Whole new world. But I think it'll be important on the one side for us to really understand it, to your point. Again, that's a lot of what we do in, as pathologists is we go into the record, we take pieces and into the literature mm -hmm. and try to pull and extract. And so this could be a tool that would be helpful. But I also think as you're having this conversation, when I the first thing I was supposed to get on board with was Theranos. When I first became oh. department chair, it was going to change the world. Yeah. right? But so I think we always have to keep the needs of that quality, safety, the patient and, and the patient and the provider having the best possible experience to gain the most accurate information to guide their care. That's really, that's our job as we look at, you know, these are just new tools. 
-hmm. Luckily, we're in a profession that we use tools to help aid in diagnosis and detection of disease. And so it's just a, a, another box, in the, I guess, in the, in the <laughs> tool shed here. Right, exactly. Well, if anyone wants to hear more about how we're using artificial intelligence in the clinical parasitology lab, I just completed a hot topic, which should be available soon through Mayo Clinic Laboratory's educational website. Um, and we could add a link to that. But yeah, Bill, you and I, we're going to be talking about this again, I know. I'm quite sure of it. So yeah, add to the list of things that will keep us coming back to have conversations. Absolutely. All right. Well, until next time, see you later. Have a great week. Sounds good. See you later. Thank you so much for tuning in to Answers from the Lab. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast and don't forget to tune in every Thursday and every other Tuesday. <laughs>